All right, let's do, if we can, some, some questions. Any questions? And this is a sweep beyond just men, women. It's a sweep beyond just the idea of, of submission in the home. It's also submission to government, 1 Peter 2, submission to an employer, any of those. I know there are practical questions out there. You ask your questions, and we've got about 15, 20 minutes to, to answer those if we can. Wonderful. Let's pray. <laughs> There's one back there too, Dennis. So in this day and age, men have a really tough time. Yes. What do you say to your family when your husband is not living up to his standards and you're praying for him, but you don't want them to interfere? So how do you, how do you keep your mother out of it? <laughs> well, it is tough. It is something that all of us in each individual situation will have to grapple with individually. The first thing, ladies, is not to nag, right? That first Peter 3 that we went over, not to nag. That is not to browbeat, not to continue to push and prod and provoke and any other P word I could think of. It's to, well, there is a, there is a P word, Pray. Pray. Pray that God will work on that man's heart. Pray your tears right out of your eyes into, the psalmist says, the bottle of God. Tears in his bottle. If you have a man, let's say that he professes faith in Christ. Maybe he's even a church-going person. Maybe he's even your husband who's here today, pray that God will get a hold of his heart. We have two chief means of grace, don't we, for the Christian, the word of God and prayer. So you yourself, douse yourself in the word of God and all of the passages that talk about leadership and male strength and authority, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Peter 3, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, so many passages that talk about what males are to be, what they're to do, fathers, husbands. Pray those passages of Scripture back to the Lord. Pray. Put your husband's name in that passage. Where it says husband, where it says man, where it says male, you put his name there. And while you're at it, could you put the other church male members' names there? I mean, we don't want to be so selfish that we're only praying that for our guy. We want to pray for our guys at the church. And look, I know I'm hitting it hard. But it's because God wants a strong, vibrant church and strong, vibrant male leadership. Now, now he wants femininity and he wants feminine touches on church to be sure And I even think women ought to be, think about this, I think women ought to be, in some cases, staff members if a church can afford it. Staff members. At times, there can be a woman who is so capable, so gifted, that we ought to consider freeing her up from whatever obligations she might have, as long as everything, of course, in her own home is taken care of, and to be able to say, we want to free this woman up to be 
at least to some degree monetarily, possibly even full-time degree, to, to minister to the children of this church, to minister to the other ladies of this church. You know, my wife and I were talking about this, and we were talking, well, wouldn't it be great someday that we cannot bar the doors for the amount of women who are wanting to come here to minister to each other and to minister to the greater body of Christ, we don't have any more seats. We don't have any more opportunities. And we were talking about it in the context of a, a Bible study. I mean, wouldn't it be great if, if you ladies were so banding together that you were studying together and praying together and even praying about some of these challenges and we had to take not just the community room, but this room, and move the chairs and reorganize things because a woman's Bible study cannot contain the number of women who want to come. I mean, that would be phenomenal, which is where I'm saying to maybe some of you ladies, you ought to avail yourselves of of some of these studies. We have Titus 2 ministries that are going on. They're going through this wonderful book, Adorn, right now. You ought to avail yourselves of that sort of close discipleship. That's where you can pray. That's where you can pray with your, with your friends, your church, fellow church members. There are also intimate discipleship that's going on one-on-one, one-on-one with a younger gal and, and an older gal. The, these are wonderful things in our church, and you can use those as vehicles to band together to pray and to understand the Word of God together. You understand Titus 2, 3 to 5. You're understanding how you are to be taught, how you are to be discipled by older women, how to love your husbands, how to be kind and pure and workers at home. You ought to be able to have that kind of relationship with us, even if it demands that at some point we say, we want to we proffer this lady before you because we want to free her up to do this. Right? So... Those are the kinds of things that, that I think about when I'm thinking about how to, to structure and in some cases restructure our ministry so that ladies can be freed up to say there is not one single area of ministry in this church with which I cannot be involved. Now we know the preaching ministry here, that is a ministry that is allowed only for male leadership. 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15. The Bible is very clear on that. There's no ambiguity there, regardless of what anybody else is saying. There's no ambiguity there at all. Men are pastors and elders. The men, males, but in just about every other way in a church, in this church, both men and women can minister together. And I thank God for that. Question? Unfortunately, as you know, that Scripture can be used and, and perverted. Um, what would you say to an, a, a woman who is actually in an abusive relationship and that Scripture is being used in, in its perverted way by the husband or that she is perverting it in her own mind of, well, I'm supposed to submit to my husband, so I need to tolerate this kind of treatment? Great question. In situations where maybe the husband and wife are not in the same church or they're not under the same leadership, it becomes even more difficult. But if they are in the same church, 
husband and wife, and she believes that abuse is occurring, if she is believing that she is understanding the Scripture correctly and that she wants to do the right things, then she'll also have no problem then coming to the leadership of the church and saying, there are problems and issues, and I need help. And, you know, just recently, one of our ladies came and said, I I need some help. I, I need some help to sort of work my way through some of these things. I don't know what all the details are, but one of our other pastor elders is is dealing with that. And what I would say is, if in fact they're here, then part of their covenant for church membership is the submission of their lives to the leadership of the local church. And what we ought to do as pastors and elders is ought to lovingly, but carefully and very skillfully come beside them, come alongside them, and to be able to help them determine, okay, what part of this is true, what part of this may not be true. You remember Proverbs 18, 13 and Proverbs 18, 17? It says, one man's case seems just until another comes and examines him. The other passage talks about if you think you've heard just one side and you make a determination, it's folly and shame to you because there's always another side. So just because a lady comes and says, I'm being abused, we need to ferret that out. We need to investigate that. If, in fact, those things are true, then we most assuredly will bring the Word of God to bear on that husband's life. If, in fact, however, she's maybe saying some things that are true, some things that are not entirely accurate, then we need to come alongside her and give her the opportunity to see Scripture more clearly. This is, this is actually not true. This is, this is true, this portion, but this is not. You're embellishing that. You're, you're overreaching there. And if, in fact, what she said has either some or full truth to it, and he is unwilling to respond in a loving way, then we must go through the steps of determining, number one, is he truly submissive to the leadership of the Word of God, to the leadership of the church, and if through a very, very precise and clear process, he is not willing to submit himself to the Word of God and to the submissive role of God's leaders over him, then it could be that that person is a subject for church discipline. It's also true that in some cases, if abuse has occurred, and so much so that it's gotten to that physical level, then that's what God has given us to do and to go to in Romans 12 with our government. Because you realize that if someone strikes another, whether it's a man to a man, a woman to another man, a man to a woman, a wife to a husband, a husband to a wife... All of those things, as we all know, according to Romans 12, are, quote-unquote, against the law. Against the law to strike a person, right? So if that's happening inside a home, and it's valid, and it can be investigated, and it's determined, possibly even in a court of law, then the church and the government can actually begin to work together, potentially. And we can say... We actually support our government when the government says laws have been broken and punishment is to be made. And we can and are often used 
not as an adversary of the government, but as an ally of the government. And I have no problem that if crimes have been committed, not just toward children, but crimes have been committed with, with quote-unquote, male and female counterparts in a relationship, then those are also covered under governmental ideals and laws for which you are responsible. I'm responsible. So those are some of the ways that I would would hit at that question. Now, there's a million scenarios, right? So you have to be, as Jesus said about his disciples when he sent them out, as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. Next question. As the world moves away from God created us male and female, in the workplace and in our school's children, they're asking us to refer to males as females and vice versa. So the question is, how do we as believers, both in the school and the work setting, both continue to be submissive to our leaders and also balance, it may not be the time or place to say something? Great question. And it really dovetails off your question because I answered that question by saying that there's a potential good and proper and right symbiotic relationship between the church and the government. Well, guess what happens when the government runs askew of God's own laws? What about a government, a society, a people who say, if you don't affirm LGBTQ, if you don't affirm that a person is so self-autonomous that they can identify with whatever gender they think they've created or society has created. And if you say, I shall not refer to you with those pronouns or lack of pronouns, I do not affirm that about you, then perhaps the government will encroach upon us in a day and in a time, probably in the future, where our First Amendment rights will be stricken. First Amendment, of course, the idea of the establishment of religion. The government shall not establish religion. And if we say, I have the rights under the First Amendment of the Constitution of the United States to say that I am not mandated to violate my religious convictions on the basis of societal norms or mores. And it's probably coming to that. It may be, like you mentioned a couple of scenarios, that if you're at a workplace and you've got a fellow employee and they're saying, you must refer to me as dot, dot, dot. And every other fellow employee says, if I don't, I could either be fired or I could be fined or I could be ridiculed. Maybe it's just social ridicule, and it's not something that you know his boss or any others are are perpetrating against them. But maybe, maybe at some point it may, may be that too. Well, how do we as Christians operate? How do we respond? Well, the first thing we ought to do is look at the Book of Acts, Acts chapter four. At some points, we are going to have to say this is what we must do. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they, that is the officials, and in this case, the officials in this season of the life of the history of our world were both religious 
and civil. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. In other words, he he was healed. We can't deny that. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, this would be like an adjudicatory um, coming you know, before these civil leaders and religious leaders, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them, that the healing of the man is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Isn't that a pregnant sentence? Do We're going to let you go with a warning, but you cannot speak any more in this name, the name of Jesus. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And that's, that's pretty blatant. That's pretty clear what they were telling them you cannot do. Verse 19, notice the contrast, but... But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. So they gave them a direct answer of what they believed they were willing and or unwilling to do, right? Verse 20, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And when they released, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, here's what they did. And here's what we have to do. We pray. They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and this is a quotation out of Psalm 2, why did the nations of the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? See, folks, we already know that there is a plotting in vain against us. You realize that just about every people group, every religious sphere, every cockamamie, crooked crazy, bizarre religious fascination on the part of anybody and everybody's sort of gender identification, and it's getting even more bizarre by the day, we know what's happening because Psalm 2 says, the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. They're not just neutral. Most of the kings of the earth, most of the courts... Most of the adjudicatory officials, they are actively, proactively setting themselves and the rulers against the Lord and against his anointed. This is, this is not neutral. This is proactive. And they are thinking of ways right now to stamp 
Christianity out as we know it. So what do you do? We pray. We pray. And you know, they they so prayed, and they actually said this, verse 29. I wish we could read and exposit the whole text. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. In other words, so that evangelization can take place, that that signs and wonders which will prove the lordship of Jesus Christ are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus and, of course, through his servants ourselves. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I love that last line. In other words, they did exactly opposite of what they were commanded to do by the government. Because when you and I are called upon as Christians to proclaim the name of the Lord with boldness, we cannot do any other. Acts 4.12, because... There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. So we may be inching, if not galloping, toward a time in which you say, I cannot say that this person is this when she's not this, when he says he's this when he's not this. And we're just using that as one example. So it may be that at times we can work so beautifully with the government and there may be at times when the government comes against us for what we believe from God's word. Now there are times when there are people who say they're doing God's work in the name of Jesus, like Westboro Baptist, who come against LBGTQ communities in a way that you and I don't countenance. We don't agree with that. We don't agree with the method, and most of the time, they're mangling Scripture so badly, we don't even agree with their message. And yet, you and I are going to be called upon to act like men and to be strong and to give that testimony and to be able to say, I'd love to work with you, government officials, but right now, you're working at cross purposes with God himself. And whatever comes my way, let it be so. We're not, we're not asking to be martyrs, but it could come. It could come. Imprisonment, death, it could come. If it came to first century Christians, it might likely come to 21st century Christians. Another question. I'll take maybe one or two if I can be short in my answers. Maria gave you the difficult one. I'll give you an easy one. So there's some grandmas and grandpas here whose children have called and says, can I come home? and bring grandchildren with them. So can you just chat a little bit about nice things that grandmas and grandpas can do for their children and grandchildren who are having a tough time? First thing is give them candy. <laughs> and they will love you forever. It's not, it's, it's not a bribe. It's, my kids have heard me say through the years, what father does not give good gifts to his children? That's a grab bag verse that I use a lot of things for. And um, just the other night, we had a dinner uh, where all of our kids and our grand, not all of them, but a, a good number of them were out with us, where Beth and I were celebrating on Friday our 33rd wedding anniversary. 
And we were with kids and grandkids, and I was in, as they say in the South, high cotton. I was just, I was looking around at all of these kids that come from my loins. And I say to myself, God, you have blessed me super abundantly. When Beth and I first got married and we tried to figure out reasons not to have children, we just couldn't come up with any. So we decided to have them. And we decided to have them in rapid fire succession. We had a couple of uh, miscarriages in there, but Beth was uh, pregnant like 10 times in 12 years. And we said to ourselves, we know it's hard. We know it's, it's really difficult. We know it's taxing. We know it's tiring. But one of these days, because parenting is not a sprint, but a marathon, we're going to be looking back on these days. And when we see those kids and grandkids and we watch them have so much fun with their kids, we're going to sit back and say, this is the glory of mothers and fathers. This is, this is the glory of it. Now, I admit, if there was a way to bypass having your own children and just get right to the grandchildren, I'd choose that option. But since that can't be the case, what you can do, I think, in two ways. Number one, if you're a grandparent, either a grandpa or grandma, please don't try to discipline those kids without permission of their parents. Okay, even if it's verbal or physical, try your best to make sure that you have ground rules established with your adult children, their parents. That is those grandchildren's parents. Try your best, and I will often, when I see one of them doing something they shouldn't be doing, that is a, a grandchild, I have to bite my tongue, and I have to say, that's not my role. Now, sometimes I slip. And I say something that I should not say, and then I should say, I should not be saying that. You're the parents. I'm not. But I tell you, I tell you this. If you enjoy them by living Christ in front of them, they will love you. They will see you as consistent. They will see you as the same, whether you're at home, whether you're at church with them, if you have the privilege of having them. If you're able to be consistent with them in your own spiritual walk, you are ministering to them as a number one cases of those who they should emulate when they become your age. Secondly, when you are able and if you are able, again with parents' permission, your young adult's permission, try to do everything you can to lavish your love upon those kids within bounds, within limits, If your adult kids say, Pops, not now, too much candy, Um, too much money, right? I tried to give one of them $20 on Friday night, and he took it. It was so happy, and then my adult daughter, who is the mother of such a child, said, he's going to rip that up, and you won't even find the other half of the 20, right? So give it back to Pops, give it back to him. And then he's crying. And then, you know, I'm crying inside because I may not have that $20 tomorrow, right? But I had it today. But they're the wise parents. They know their children far better than we do. And secondly, catechize them. Teach them. I'm so grateful for Beth. 
So grateful for what she's wanting to do. Because oftentimes, because it's Friday and Sunday's coming, I'm not available to do that catechizing. Right? I, have to, I have to figure out other ways and other means because usually on Fridays, I'm making sure that Sunday's coming, right? So if you can, do what you can to love them with all your heart, bless them with all your heart, nourish them with, with words from the Word of God, be involved in catechizing them, teaching them, modeling for them the way of the cross, and giving them as far as you can a way to see that they believe in their little hearts that Gramps and Grammy love the Lord, love the Lord. One of our grandsons said to my wife on Friday, but, but, but Grammy, but Grammy, wait a minute. Uh, the, 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 there's a picture and it, and it has three men uh, on crosses. Well, well, I thought it was only Jesus on the cross. What a great teaching opportunity. And she handled that question well, and that's what you have to do. And you invite those questions. You, you women know all of this. This is for the guys. It's for the, the men and the grandpas, right? This is, this is an opportunity for you to say, don't be hands-off with them. Don't be hands-off with them. You can do it in other ways, but do it nonetheless, and you will never regret it. Okay, one last question. Lens, there's a, there's a uh, couple of large words that have been in church circles, theological circles, but they're making their way into social circles now, and they're still centered in the church, but now they're becoming more socialized. Uh, The world is using them, not like they didn't use them before, but it really confronts the church, and the church has to take a stand, or does take a stand in one of these two areas, and that is between men and women, and the two terms are complementarianism and egalitarianism, Again, those are large words, but those are, those are becoming more forceful these days. And even in the last several months, they are gaining ground in terms of which one is appropriate and biblical. And I want to open that up to you for the last question today and, and w- the significance of it in our social circles these days, yeah. in the news cycle these days, and certainly in the church. Yeah, those two words, they're, they're words that are used in even secular contexts, but very much so in Christian contexts, religious contexts, and they are complementarianism. Complementarianism is simply a word that means that while we believe as Christians, like Galatians 3.28, that there is, there is no difference as to male and female regarding their spirituality, they, they are, as men and women, both equal before the Lord. Uh, There's no gradation, uh, there's no uh, stepping stones, uh, there's no lag time uh, between a man's relationship with the Lord and a woman's relationship with the Lord. They are, in fact, equal at the cross. But complementarianism says that while they are equal and they are absolutely in union with Jesus Christ as fellow believers, joint heirs, there are differentiations in roles and responsibilities. In other words, the very word itself, complement, is used to describe how a husband and a wife are complementary to each other. Now, we even know that in terms of anatomy. They are complementary to each other. That's, that's where babies come from. 
We know that. There, there are anatomical differences, and there are also role differentiations. And those role differentiations are also seen in Holy Scripture. And we've been studying this in 1 Peter 2 and 3. And that kind of complementarity is a way of describing what the Bible teaches when it says, equal at the cross, union with Christ, no differences there, complete unity, but differentiation in roles and responsibilities. And I just said it earlier about the office of preacher, the office of pastor, the office of elder. That is reserved, according to 1 Timothy 2, 9-15, to males, to men. And so that is a role differentiation between women and men, between females and males. Males are to take the authoritative role in the teaching, preaching ministry of the church as elders, as pastors. That's a role differentiation. Also in the home, there's a role differentiation, and that role differentiation is this. The husband has the authoritative leadership role in the home. And a woman, according to 1 Peter chapter 2 that we've studied, is to be a submissive subject in that home to that male leadership. That's what the Bible teaches. So that's what we mean by complementarity, complementarianism. They complement each other. There is somebody to lead and somebody to submit or follow that lead. Egalitarianism is a word that evangelicals and others have come up with to say, nah, I'm not so sure. Not so sure about what you just said and how you defined this idea of the Bible having a a complementarianism about it. Egalitarian teaching is actually what the Bible gives us, and that is that we're equal at the cross, just like you said, but there is an obliteration at the cross of any role differentiations. No role differentiations at all. There is not a male leader as the authoritative head of the home, and there is not a woman's required submissiveness, biblically speaking, to that husband. That also bleeds itself into the church where you would then say egalitarianism, if it's going to be stretched to its logical conclusion, means that either a male or female can be a lead pastor, teacher, elder, shepherd in this pulpit. So you can either see it as manifested in the home with what I said, or maybe also in the church and certainly in society in general. So those are, those are the, 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 the two terms that the question was being asked to define. Now the idea is, There are churches who have an egalitarian mindset with regard to men and women. And you and I would say, I don't think that's what the Bible would have us do and to understand. We would be a church that fosters a complementarity about us without the edginess, without the authoritarian leadership, without women... Uh, sort of uh, seeing this submission as automatically a bad thing, a horrible thing, a terrible thing. When it is being lived out in the power of the Spirit 
and with biblical guidelines, it's most definitely, in my opinion, a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful complement of what God has created in the home and in the church. It works well when it works well. When it doesn't work well, it does make people think that they should re-examine the Scriptures. Now, some of them would say, no, I re-examined the Scriptures first, and then I realized all of the excesses. Well, whichever way they say, the bottom line is this. They're going to advocate for that view, whether it's that church or that home, for a no-role differentiation at all, and that they believe that works beautifully as well. Well, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, here's what we do. We just go right back to these texts, and we study them like our life depends on it, and then we teach the view that we believe is most consistent with Holy Scripture. That's all we can do, right? And if, in fact, a church declares about itself that they shall not have a female as the preacher or preaching in this pulpit in mixed groups, and you heard me say before, I believe that women could have staff positions, but they are positions that don't include preaching in this pulpit to a mixed group that is men and women. Egalitarians say, we have no problems with doing that. There are denominations not just even those in mainline denominations and liberal congregations, but in evangelical congregations who are saying, we are wiping away the stigma, and it's not just because of the Me Too movement. It happened long before the Me Too movement. And we are erasing all role differentiation, and we're saying that men and women can do every single thing in the church that each of them are called to do, and that it's to preach and teach and minister and shepherd and counsel, and that there are no differentiations at all, and a woman can preach in a pulpit to a mixed group. She may even be the senior pastor of a local church. That is being lived out in several denominations that if I gave you their names, you'd say, I, I, I didn't even know that. That's, that's interesting. Wow, that's, that's surprising or that's shocking. Well, that's what's going on. So I'm glad for the question. Here's what we need to do. All of us, we need to do exactly what Acts 18 says about the noble Bereans. They examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And that's what we need to do. Let's keep being noble Bereans. Our church has positions, but let's continue to teach and study and refine our positions until we are most comfortable with them as a church. And then we'll allow other churches to do the same in their own contexts, right? Great questions. Maybe we'll do this again. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this series so timely in our day. This, this matter of First Peter 2 and 3 and about submission and about authority, this is so keen an issue in our day that we pray that your word of God has shown light to us because, in fact, it is your word. And we are guided by such a word. We are encouraged and edified by such a word. And may we continue to study your word to give solid answers, not just for each other in the world of the church, but give answers, gospel answers, for a watching, wicked world who some of them, because they're your elect, will hear the gospel that we communicate 
and will repent and believe. And we ask that you would make our church the kind of church where people want to come to hear the pure, unadulterated word of God. May it be so. In Jesus' name, amen.